This is ARRL's Eclectic Tech, a bi-weekly look at the technical and scientific side of amateur radio with your host Steve Ford, WB8IMY. Eclectic Tech is brought to you by ICOM. ICOM, for the love of ham radio, is about the passion for an incredible hobby. Visit ICOM in the community webpage at www.icomamerica.com forward slash community. I'm speaking with David Kasdan, AD8Y. Good morning, David. Hi, how are you? Good. You have been doing some really interesting work uh, with your research group at Case Western Reserve University. And I know from seeing some of what you've published that it regards, at least in part, coherent CW. Now, before we get into the meat of it, though, for listeners who may not be familiar, can you define or describe coherent CW? Yeah, I'd like to think that this is the last of the firsts of CW, but in 50 plus years of reading QST, there's always another first in CW, so I'm not going to make that claim. Coherent CW is essentially FT8 in Morse code form. It dates back to the 1970s in the amateur radio literature and the 1940s in the professional information theory literature. But it's the placing of Morse code on a formal information theoretic basis, which mostly means accurate timing, not only on the transmit side, which is what every electronic keyer and automatic keyboard transmitting program does these days, but also accurate timing on the receive side that's synchronized with the send side. Now, information theory, more or less, The statement of it is forewarned is forearmed. Mm. So if you know exactly when each Morse element is going to begin and going to end, you have a whole lot more information about it going in than you do if it has a random start time, and then you're not quite sure of sending speed, so it also has a random ending time. And you get to use all of the modern information processing systems like FT8 does to decode Morse. Does, Does that begin to describe it for you? Yeah, yeah. It reminds me, not entirely, but in part of a device I remember that uh, Daiwa, now this goes back to the 1970s, early 80s, had attempted to market in the United States that basically was a very, very sharp audio filter that uh, you would tune into a Morse signal. And rather than just uh, playing the filtered signal through the speaker, it would actually use that to key an oscillator. So you wouldn't hear the signal directly. You would just hear this totally clean keyed oscillator. There was a very nice article. Um, I remember doing the project in my dorm room undergrad. So that means the article was about 1977 in Ham Radio back when. Ham Radio Magazine, remember that one? Yes. About using a 567 tone decoder phase lock loop chip for that. And a phase lock loop is essentially a tight filter. And the 567 added a comparator to the uh, basic phase lock loop circuit. So that was used to key a 555 oscillator. 555s were pretty new back then. And yeah, it would pick out a single tone pretty well and do a nonlinear filtering so you didn't have the ringing problems. Exactly. My roommate, uh, Joe, WB2TVB, he and I had a little radio station set up in our dorm room back when, and we played with it and really did enjoy that. But what you're doing or what you're proposing to do is much more advanced than that. 
This is, yeah, this is something quite different. This is also a nonlinear filtering system. But let me describe what Raymond Pettit set up, uh, what he described in QST in 1975. And I am looking at my notes. I don't have his call sign written down, but he has been SK for some years. Yes. He, yeah, um, he built with his friends rather a complicated transmitting and receiving matched system. This was before microprocessors were much in use by hobbyists. So he realized all of this in analog filtering and CMOS circuits. And the idea was he had a good one megahertz crystal oscillator running on both transmit and receive side. He made the observation that under strict definition of Morse code, these days by the International Telecommunications Union of the UN in a 1992 publication, who knew that they got to define Morse code for the rest of us, but okay. Um, <laughs> in, yeah, it's, really, it's actually a very comical publication. It's worth looking up, and I, it, I, I sent it to you in the bibliography for this, this conversation, so if you have a webpage that you post such things to, this, this is worth reading. Sure. Um, but anyway, in, in strictest definition, there is a time element in Morse code. And a dit occupies one time element, a da occupies three, a space between key down elements occupies one, a space between letters occupies three, a space between words occupies seven, and that's it. That's all the timing definitions of Morse code, the continental code. Mm -hmm. So he had, if, if you go through their definition by that, uh, the reason the word Paris is used for timing is that including the inter-word space after, it includes exactly 50 of those, those elements. And at 12 words per minute, the timing works out to 100 milliseconds per element exactly. So I realize 12 words per minute is not blazing fast Morse, but it's convenient for these timings. So sure. it, it's, it's what everything got standardized around. So both sides had a one megahertz crystal oscillator. They got divided down by CMOS dividers to 100 milliseconds. And every time the sending station went key down, the logic started an element exactly on one of these time frames. So there was quite a learning curve to learning to send with this. You had to get accustomed to its timing. It wasn't going to adapt to you. But you sent exactly accurate Morse. That's not such a big deal with modern computers. But what was novel about it was that even if you paused for a thought, the timing of the next character that you sent wasn't random. It was exactly on one of these 100 millisecond intervals. Ah, okay. So on the receiving side, the circuitry knew when to start checking. So usually these were prearranged QSOs. There wound up a community of about 150 people doing this, and there were newsletters, and there were uh, some articles written uh, after Pettit's. But the, um, the sending station would send the two call signs and a string of Vs and a string of dits for a while. The receiving operator would have a phasing knob and would turn the phasing knob until the oscillator sound coming out of his unit sounded like a Morse code oscillator. It's like what you were describing. Mm -hmm. And the difference was he was applying full information theoretic analysis to it. Each timing interval integrated the signal coming out of the receiver's audio to look for noise. And the way that an integration for noise works is that noise 
has an average of zero over time. If you're tossing a coin and you assign one to heads and negative one to tails, with a lot of coin tosses, the average is going to be zero. That's what noise coming out of the receiver, Gaussian noise, stationary noise, you put a bunch of adjectives on it that don't completely fit what we actually hear on the handband, but pristine noise, so to speak, has an average of zero. Okay. If, if there is no signal during that time, then your averaging device gives you an answer that's near zero, and then the logic decision-making device says there wasn't a signal during that time, don't key the code oscillator. If there was key down and energy in that frequency band during that 0.1 second, then the integrator's output is above a noise threshold that has to be predetermined. And the logic says, okay, key the oscillator for 100 milliseconds. So it's always 100 milliseconds behind what was sent, but that makes sense. You don't know if a dit or a dot was sent until it's completed. And it worked like a charm. It worked in all the ways that FT8 works now. They were able to get noiseless code practice like Morse out of signals that were barely audible in noise. You still had to be a good Morse operator. This was CW operating on both send and receive side. But you didn't have the fatigue of having to listen for a signal, digging it out of noise. And in fact, this would dig out signals that even a good operator could not hear in noise. You didn't need the linear filter ringing problem, even though the what's called the integrate and dump analysis system was using analog filters. So this worked well. There were about 150 operators. There were some QST publications. There were some letters. Um, It went well until desktop computers and sound cards showed up. And there was an interesting problem there. Radio teletype transferred to sound card computers, Apple's and Commodore 64's pretty quickly. Five-bit bought out radio teletype was legal on the handbands, but no other digital modes were. It took a while to get 7-bit ASCII approved. That's right. And then in Europe, PSK31 showed up. And in in absolutely perfect amateur radio hyperbole, QST's article about PSK31 called it the the new Prometheus. <laughs> that this was isn't it great that this was what was going to change all of amateur radio, and in some sense it did. Yeah, um, U.S. amateurs certainly embraced PSK31. The problem was it wasn't legal. It didn't take long though for the FCC to figure out that it needed to be. And an FCC ruling said that any digital mode could be used as long as the protocol was published. That's right. And that was the end of Coherent CW. Okay. That was the end of Coherent CW. There just wasn't a need for it for deep QRM, high signal to noise, low low signal to noise ratio digital communication anymore. So everybody went to PSK31. Now, the guys who got left out were the technicians. They had HF privileges, as as they do now, rather good ones, on 80, 40, and 15 meters, but it's on-off telegraphy only. The computer programs that did a decent job of decoding at least electronic keyer sent CW were getting pretty good at that point. You can actually do pretty well if you have a threshold filter like you described that looks for, just does envelope detection, looks for the beginning of a CW element looks for the end of it, and makes a determination whether the timing of that element was more or less 
than one half of the average timing that's taken place over the last couple of seconds. You can actually adapt to changing timing frames and changing CW speed pretty well with that. But the line has been that those programs mostly work for decoding WNAW code practice and in all honesty, not that well for almost anything else. Sometimes decoding WNAW is your target. That's okay. I spent a lot of time listening to WNAW code practice back when I was preparing for my license exams. That, that's okay. But sometimes you want a QSO. So for rather a different set of reasons, our research group started talking about coherent CW. So here is a, a different set of background problems. The total solar eclipse across North America in 2017 was a really amazing opportunity for HF research and amateur radio activity. It was the first eclipse that was in the era of inexpensive GPS receivers, is what it really amounts to. So it permitted the amateur radio community to do accurate frequency determination of accurately sent signals, in particular WWVs, to see if there was Doppler shift or uh, fading across the path of the eclipse. And along with HAMSI, the Amateur Radio Science Citizen Initiative, Nathaniel Frisell, uh, Phil Erickson, and a group of other fully qualified research amateur radio operators, um, a bunch of data data analysis studies were done. One part of it was the Eclipse QSO party, which encouraged any amateur to get involved, make contact all during the time that the Eclipse was going across North America, and submit logs so that fading might be described, and the midpoints of all the contacts over time could, could be described. And really, this work was done very well. The next big Eclipse is 2024. Yes. And I got some fair fraction of the American population traveled somewhere to see the 2017 eclipse. So I noticed the state of Ohio already has a tourism advisory on their webpage for traveling around the 2024 eclipse. The path of totality will go across Cleveland. Case Western Reserve University paid good money to have that and <laughs> unfortunately ex excluded MIT. So they have to come to Cleveland to be part of our eclipse studies. But anyway, um, we... We have been trying only to improve on the ionospheric analysis systems that we did. And the idea came up of using coherent CW as part of it. So here's the story. If you replace the local crystal oscillators in coherent CW with GPS receivers, the one pulse per second output from GPS receivers, uh, it's better on some of them than on others, but on good ones under good conditions, it has an uncertainty of only about 10 nanoseconds, and even on the more day-to-day -day ones, it's not much worse than 100 nanoseconds. Huh. So everybody has the same timing available. What you have left, once you've established a coherent CW contact that is GPS-timed, is the propagation delay. So maybe an average propagation delay for a North American contact is on the order of 5 milliseconds, speed of light and, and distance issues. But it's not a terribly difficult problem if you have a training sequence, a string of Vs or a string of DITs or an exchange of call signs or something. I, I had a laugh going through good pseudo-random Morse code patterns to, to try to use for precise timing. And I realize that QLF probably has about as much... <laughs> 
information entropy as any short Morse code does. So yes, you're sitting yes. with your left foot, QLF. Okay, it kind of makes sense that that has a lot of entropy. Anyway, um, so having a software phase lock loop checking against a training sequence to see what the timing delay is, is not that difficult a problem. And if the latitude, longitude, or the maidenhead squares are included as the training sequence, then you kind of get it all automatically. And our plan is to use this as part of our CLIP study and encourage technician licensees to be involved in the HF part of the Eclipse QSO party to submit data for this. Now, having said all of that, this is th those refinements are a year distant. The Amateur Radio Digital Communications Foundation was nice enough to fund an electrical engineering senior project involving Coherent CW. And I would like to give a shout out to that project group. We have undergraduate students, Olivia O'Brien, KC3SXB, Carolina Whitaker, KD9NKM, and Ryan Marks, KN6RBK. Uh, two of them got their licenses specifically so that they could be involved in this project. One of them, in fact, made his first QSO in Coherent CWs. I think ah. that is that is an historic first for a technician <laughs> licensee. Yeah, uh, Olivia got her license for it, but she made her first contact in Olivia of with course. Laura in 8 NFE. Yeah, I, and in fact, I think her picture is going to be in QSD for this. It's, it's really great. Anyway, um, they made first contact and first long-distance contact. Our outgoing club president, Aiden Monterre, KB3UMD, was in Philadelphia, and he sent Coherent CW from there. We weren't set up to do two-way, but he did a beaconing for us. We got a very good decode. He, by the way, uh, today is starting as a new engineer at NIST Time and Frequency Division in Boulder. Oh. And Carolina took this project. She will be starting in about a month with Motorola's software-defined radio group. They were fascinated by this project. And I also, of course, want to mention our other collaborators on this. Past Radio Club President Christina Collins, KD8OXT, who is a well-published HF ionospheric researcher now and is completing her PhD in electrical engineering at Case Western Reserve University. And John Gibbons, N8OBJ, he's the manager of the Undergraduate Electronics Laboratory and has spent an enormous amount of time on these projects, including preparing the circuit boards that are used for the Teensy and the GPS for the Coherent CW project and several others. So congratulations to everyone involved. And everybody know I, I congratulate you and I appreciate your help. Anyway, that project did achieve a Teensy implementation of Coherent CW. Teensy is a high-speed version of an Arduino. We mm -hmm. chose to use a microcontroller as the data collection front end for this because without any operating system running, the hardware interrupts from the GPS receiver can be precise. We did timings on Raspberry Pis because the Linux operating system has so much work to do. The interrupts weren't being serviced fast mm. enough. So we have this as a front end. We have Python code that runs on a host computer to provide the keyboard back and forth. And really, it's it's been a very good adventure. Uh, we we felt like we have an interesting first here in Morse code. We look forward to continuing it, and we look forward to some of your listeners who are interested, perhaps collaborating with us. How can they contact you? Well, ad8y at arrl.net, 
where do you think my email is going to be? Well, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, this is, this is fascinating, really. Oh, uh, it's really great. I have another interesting side story to it. Uh, Brian Callahan, 82BA. Yes. He is a computer science professor at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. He published in QEX not too long ago about a new protocol for data file transfer in radio telegraphy. It, um, it's maybe not the fastest way to send a file. I don't know that you're going to want to send full video this way, but you know, sometimes being able to send a short file is, is not a bad thing. And I sent him a note about Coherent CW. I said, if we can get the bit error rate down well enough, then there are some other interesting possibilities. Uh, he's a professional-level bassoonist, <laughs> and I, I have a music degree. I play flute and viola. We say, you know, we could probably get the bit rate good enough for doing a MIDI transfer. So the FCC rules, as, as every amateur should know, prohibit the transmission of music, but that's only using radio telephone modes. The, that's right. The, the rules specify that. So I, I can kind of imagine as, a, as at least a one-off demo, having a MIDI keyboard sending coherent CW, coherent CW being received on the other end and playing the music. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll, well, we'll see if we can get that one working. It's not our first target, but Brian, Brian liked that one. We'll, we'll see what happens. That does sound good. Thank you, David. This is, this is fascinating, and I, I wish you and your group the best. Yeah, this is very cool. Um, I will add I encourage everybody who's interested in amateur radio or shortwave listening to make plans what they're going to do for the 2024 eclipse. It's not that far off. This is a notch worse than field day. You have to prepare uh, for us, if you're not there for those three minutes around 3.30 in the afternoon, Monday, April 8th, 2024, it's over. There isn't another one until 2099, I think it is. So prepare for the eclipse. I'll miss that one. (laughs) (laughs) Nah, we'll be around. It's okay. We're not getting any younger here, but we'll be around. (laughs) Oh, I'm sorry, for 2024, we'll be around. Maybe not for 2099, no. I propose that the um, the case graduating class prepare a time capsule for the graduating class of 2099. So, yeah, we'll, we'll see if we can get that to work out. Anyway, I, I appreciate your time. It's been a pleasure meeting you by telephone after all these years, and a pleasure talking with you today. Certainly, you too. Tune in again for the next episode of Eclectic Tech, produced by ARRL, the National Association for Amateur Radio. Music is provided by Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com. If you have comments, email eclectic at arrl.org. This episode is copyright ARRL and all rights are reserved. I'm Sabrina Jackson, KC1JMW. See you next time.